0: Hello everybody, I'm Dr. Trevin Hatch. Welcome to the Strangers in Jerusalem YouTube channel and podcast where we explore the Gospels and the Jesus traditions within their Jewish context. If you like these videos and you want to support the cause, please click subscribe below and tell me in the comments something new that you learned in this video. We know that the more engagement I have with you guys, whether uh, you're subscribing or commenting or liking these videos, The YouTube algorithm will pick it up and more people will see it. So so, uh, please do that. Also, if you you prefer the podcast over the YouTube video, you can find the podcast at strangersinjerusalem.podbean.com. So you can go there and get those episodes. Also, check out my book, A Stranger in Jerusalem, Seeing Jesus as a Jew. You will find in that book many insights and extensive footnotes on sources on the Jewish context of Jesus also please forgive the sound in the in the recent videos that i did on the birth narratives of jesus and also the baptism episodes it was just a tech issue in the production studio but i'm trying to get that tech problem fixed it better be a tech thing because huh the way i sound in my eardrums this is immaculate man in this episode we will start looking at jesus's childhood and young adulthood we will explore issues like family life work poverty health and disease and also education and and, and related issues. So follow me, let's go to Jerusalem. So anyways, Let's get down to the nitty gritty. Yes, Nacho, let's get down to the nitty gritty. The first issue we want to deal with is is, is to explore is the village, the type of village, and the type of home that Jesus would have lived in. The region of Galilee during Jesus' lifetime contained hundreds of villages. The number we get from Josephus is 204 villages that peppered the Galilean landscape. Only a small number of these settlements were more than about 100 acres in size. Tiberius, Sepphoris, but most of the other villages were were less than 20 acres. Capernaum, Nazareth, and Cana, all these cities mentioned in the New Testament, were only about 2 to 10 acres in size. So they're very small. And in fact, at Nazareth, archaeologists have shown that this is probably a city of 50 houses maximum, based on their survey. So you can get an idea of how big they are. If we account for living quarters, estimated persons per household, space for livestock, space for a threshing floor and crop, you have to grow crops. If we account for all of that, the population was probably around 100 inhabitants per acre, So, which means that in the first century, most people living in Judea and Galilee lived in villages that ranged from a few hundred to a thousand inhabitants. So this is like the size of a small high school where everybody knows everyone else these small villages contained only a few modest commercial buildings maybe a press for oil and and wine certainly a small water cistern narrow and unpaved roads and a cemetery in contrast the bigger cities like tiberius would have border walls and marketplaces aqueducts theaters a stadium of, uh, of sorts a hippodrome they would have paved roads and even as like a sewer system, that's the contrast. And as a child, Jesus may have seen this. Notice this contrast between the villages and the cities. Since like Sepphoris uh, was only f- three and a half miles from Nazareth, so he would have. You can even see it. You stand on the Nazareth Ridge, you can see Sepphoris, this big administrative capital of the region, compared to his little town of fifty houses. Extensive research on houses in antiquity has revealed that most peasant dwellings in villages were, on average, between 2,500 to 3,000 square feet. That sounds fairly big. That's, like, that's the size of a modern American home, an average home. But this included the courtyard and space for animals or livestock. These stone structures, these houses, these stone structures were flat roofed and had a, had one or two rooms. The ceilings were quite low. They were about five feet high. So I'm six and a half feet tall. I would have to bend down and as, as I walked through the house. People typically accessed the upper level by lat, they would climb a ladder, and most walls were were typically plastered, and the floors were dirt surfaces. Some extended families built houses that shared a central courtyard, so you'd have a house here and a house here, and they would share like a central open-air courtyard. In the hot months of the summer, people would sleep on top of their roof and they would just roll their bedding out and sleep on top of the roof out under the stars. Families experienced little privacy in this style of dwelling. Depending on the region and the landscape, many houses were also built on top of caves, which usually stored food and sometimes people would put their animals back in the On the main floor in the back of the house in in the cave now what about family structure the age of first marriage and its impact on the culture is of particular interest to us when mary gave birth to jesus she was probably in her teens in the first century 16 or 17 years old was a typical age for women to marry the minimum age according to roman law was 12 for females and 14 for males. And this seems to be the custom among Jewish families as well. According to Roman census records in Egypt, 20% of women were married by age 14, and 40% were married by age 16. So what this tells us is that by age 16 or 17, Mary would have been of marriageable age for two or three years already. No way! Yes way. Uh, Very young, very young indeed. Several Jewish texts in antiquity stress the importance of marrying, uh, getting married young, especially for males. The Mishnah, this is a text that dates to about 200 or maybe 150 years after the death of Jesus, so within a couple of generations. This text designates ages 5 to 17 for males to study, but they then at age 18 for them to marry. In one discussion in rabbinic literature, one rabbi opined that, quote, he who is 20 years of age and is not married spends all his days in sinful thoughts. And the context of this is in sexual thoughts, right? Because if they're not sexually active, married, then they would be constantly distracted, according to the rabbi's view. And so it's better to get married at an earlier age. And this rabbi's associate in this text reminded the group that previous rabbis had stated the following, quote, as soon as one attains 20 and has not married, God exclaims, blasted be his bones. And another rabbi, perhaps with a t- typical male competitive ego, commented that the reason that I am superior to my colleagues is that I married at age 16. But had I married at age 14, I would have been able to say to Satan an arrow in your eye. So it's kind of a, a, a funny clip there from the Babylonian Talmud. This is about 500 years after Jesus. The divine mandate of marriage was well understood by Jews at the time of Jesus. The rabbis referred often to the commandments in Genesis to marry. For them, it was clear that the purpose of marriage was at least twofold. The first was the commandment for companionship, or the ideal for companionship. And Here's Genesis 2. It is not good that man should be alone. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. So Genesis 2, 18 and 24. A few Jewish ancient texts posited the belief among the rabbis that God looks so favorably upon marriage that he himself is a matchmaker for his people. That's his main role. In one rabbinic story, a Roman woman came to Rabbi Yossi ben Halputa and she asked him what God has been doing since he finished creating the earth. The rabbi answered that God spends all of his time making matches. The woman, thinking that matchmaking was easy, said, you know, I have quite a number of slave boys and slave girls, and in a brief moment, I can match them too. And the rabbi replied that it's not so easy. He argued that matching men and women was harder for God than splitting the Red Sea. So that night, the Roman woman went home, matched up all her slave boys and slave girls. She matched them up, sent them to their own quarters, married them, basically, And the text says that in the morning they came to her. One had a broken head, the other a blind eye, a third a broken hand, a fourth a broken foot, and a fifth said, I don't want this one. A sixth said, I don't want that man. And the woman sent the rabbi a message saying, your Torah, your scriptures, is indeed praiseworthy. So it's just kind of a funny story embedded in antiquity that kind of shows this idea among the rabbis that God cares so much about the institution of marriage that he spends all of his time helping make matches, bringing people together. Several ancient rabbis maintained that failing to procreate was akin to murder. So here is in the Babylonian Talmud, here is Rabbi Eliezer. He he stated... He who does not engage in propagation of the race is as though he sheds blood, for it is said, whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. And this is immediately followed by the text, be fruitful and multiply. So what that, what that t- tells the rabbis is that it was so important that you multiply, that if you don't do that and you prevent yourself from having children and posterity, that's as if you committed murder. Many factors impacted the size and structure of the family in Greco-Roman Palestine as many as five to 10% of women died in childbirth. Infants and children also died at high rates. Some demographic studies found that women in the Greco-Roman world averaged five or six children, but many children died young and more died before reaching adulthood. Census records in Egypt during the Roman period, for example, show that nearly half of the population were under age 20. Only 12% of females and 14% of males lived past age 50. According to a study of 227 Jewish burial remains, in the, this is in the Judean foothills, 227 remains, and these are dating to the Roman period, the average lifespan was 24 years. It's very small. Archaeological data from ancient tombs reveals a similar conclusion. Nearly 50% of 200 people buried in the Myron tomb in Upper Galilee, 50% of those people died before the age of 18. Of those who died before the age of 18, 70% of them died before the age of 5. For women in this particular study, life expectancy was in the low 20s, and for men, life expectancy was around 30. What? What are you talking about? Most adults were malnourished and had iron deficiencies. Their, their molar teeth were worn or missing, which suggests that grain was their primary diet, so they had very little protein and iron. They probably ate very little meat. Even if they, surprisingly, they even though they were near the Sea of Galilee, they didn't eat a lot of fish. They would use that and sell that off. Their skeletal remains had numerous fractured bones, inflamed joints arthritic hips and shoulders, osteoporosis, and crooked backs. It's a very harsh reality to the world in which Jesus grew up in and lived. It is probably safe to conclude that most people at the time of Jesus walked around with chronic pain. According to one assessment, a typical individual living at the time of Jesus had a 76% chance of of having a living father by age 10, only a 49% chance of having a living father when you're 20 years old and only a 25% chance of having a living father by age 30. So given these percentages, Jesus's father, Joseph, was probably deceased by the time Jesus reached adulthood. Um, Every single day of my life has been worse than the day before it. So that means that every single day that you see me, that's on the worst day of my life. What about today? Is today the worst day of your life? Yeah. Wow, that's messed up. What does all this mean for our understanding of the pre-ministry life of Jesus? Well, what it says is that by age 14, many of Jesus' peers would have died, had parents who had died, or had already been married or moved out of their parents' home. As a child, Jesus would have witnessed rampant death, several marriages of his peers, widowhood, many childless parents, and numerous parentless children. This reality would have shaped his worldview in relation to his later ministry and his message of compassion and love for humanity, especially children. So that's all. Thanks for watching this video. And again, subscribe if you enjoy learning about the context of Jesus's ministry and him as a Jewish teacher and miracle worker. Please, Again, please tell me in the comments something new that you learned in this video. And as always, you will find many more details in the other videos, but also in my book, A Stranger in Jerusalem, Seeing Jesus as a Jew. You can check that out or you can go to the podcast.